So week two, week two of our sermon series looking at stories. Last week we looked at the power of story, the power of story uh, with this verse that we are letters from Christ. We are letters from Christ. And so God is writing a story with our lives. We're going to be pursuing that theme throughout the next uh, four weeks now. It's a five-week sermon series. This morning is all about, this morning is all about the fact that God is writing a really big story. He's the author of it all. He's writing a big story, and we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of God's bigger and better story if we so choose. We are invited to be a part of it. I like to imagine that this story is kind of like a divine flow, maybe like a river, maybe like a river. And uh, I like this imagery of, of there's a river going, and I, uh, part of it is you can pull it from Revelation 22. Revelation 22, looking at the end of times and, and this vision that John has of God seated on a throne, the lamb on his right-hand side, and there's a river of life flowing from the throne. So imagine this river of life is something that we can all get caught up in, if you just want to go with the metaphor with me for a little bit. But I'm a little bit on the, uh, not the wild side, maybe I'm a little bit on the wild side. So I like to imagine the river of life as something we can raft something we can jump in and we can participate in and we can enjoy the ride. But because I'm a little wild, I like to imagine that's a little bit like this. Because if it's anything like real life, if the river of life is anything and the thing that God is inviting to is anything like real life, we know that the journey isn't just always a float trip. That there's ups and downs and there's boulders and there's trees and there's all these things and it's so much fun. We get to enjoy the ride. And I've spent many days whitewater rafting. It's one of my favorite things to do in youth, with youth ministry kids is take them out on the river, get them out in the middle of nowhere. It's just, you know, to see kids who are like that freaks them out and throw them in that boat and say, here we go. It's going to be great. Um, time of my life. I had amazing conversations on the river with kids. And so I love, I love the metaphor of getting into the divine flow and it being something like a whitewater rafting experience. And here's why. When, when you're on the water, you have a few choices when you're on the water. I've seen people make a lot of these choices. You can grip that oar, get in the middle of the boat, refuse to participate, freaked out, anxious about what is coming around the bend, and just bear, white knuckling and saying, get me out of this thing. I've seen a lot of people do that. It's not very much fun to be sitting in a boat with somebody who does that, by the way, because to, 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 you know, to propel the boat, you have to be paddling. So you need participants in the flow. You need people around you participating in the adventure. You need people participating. And so it's so much more fun when, when you're participating together and, and you're actually involved and engaged and you're paddling and you're getting some speed and you're enjoying it and you're laughing. That's the journey. And I have this, this, this image in my mind that God is inviting us into something like that. But on the river, there are some real dangers. And I, and I like these because I think they're metaphors for life as well. There's some real dangers. There's something called sweepers. Sweepers. Sweepers are usually trees that are hanging over the water. And what can happen, your guide will tell you that if you're not paying attention and you're just like, you know, totally complacent, aloof, like a lot of junior hires that I went rafting with were, where they're just looking around, they're not paying attention, these trees can all of a sudden just hit you, sweep you out of the boat, literally can do that. I've seen it happen to kids, where they're just not paying attention, we're going over towards the river's edge, and the tree, you know, the guide is like, get down, sweeper, and they are not listening, not paying attention, 
and they're swept out of the boat at times. This can happen in life if we're complacent, if we're just kind of aloof, just going through the motions and not paying attention to what's going on around us. Sweepers can come along and knock us out of the boat. There's another phenomenon in the water. It's called an eddy. Now, an eddy is this interesting current that uh, usually I've seen them along the river bank, and it's kind of where some of the water goes back upstream. And so this is kind of a dead piece of water. It kind of creates a place where the boat can just hang out. The flow is going. It's going. You can see it. You can reach it. You can jump in whenever you want, or you can just hang over here in this dead water and go, I'm not going over there. I'm not going to do it. So you're in the water. You're in the flow. It's kind of still, though, that kind of like, this is safe. This is where I want to be, but it's also pretty boring. It's also pretty boring. And I think in life, we can also do that. We can, we can kind of dip to the side and say, like, oh, I don't know that I really want to get into that, that, that rushing river over there. Let's just hang out over here. There's other more dangerous elements on the river as well. And one of these things is called a strainer a strainer, and it, sa- it is just like what it sounds. This phenomenon usually happens when the tree goes into the water now. It's submerged. And so if you imagine a colander or a strainer, the water can get through, but bigger things can't. Now this is really dangerous because if you get caught in the water and you get into the strainer, you don't get through it. This is like real for real danger. Real for real danger. These are the things where they try to tell you you have to anticipate it. If you are in the water and you see it coming and the guide yells strainer, you have to do, like if you can imagine getting out of a pool, you have to face it. You can't, you can't escape it. Here it comes. You're going at it and you have to jump up over it, propel your body over it, or you, you run the risk of getting stuck. And I was thinking about this and there are, there are strainers, I think, in life. There are things like addictions and self-harm and things we just can't get out of when we get stuck. We may be in the flow of life. We may be trying to do it and there's things that are coming. And like the strainer on the river, if you can anticipate these things, if your eyes are up, you're focused on, on, on the road ahead, on the, on, it's not a road, it's a river ahead, you're focused ahead, you can avoid these things. But if you're not, You can get trapped, you can get stuck, and they can lead to death. They can lead to death. And so I love the image of the river. And there is a final option in the river metaphor. The final option is just getting out of the river altogether. And I've seen many choose this. Or, Well, they tried to choose it when I was leading them, and you know they just didn't have an option. They had to get in the boat because I was in charge and they had to go. When we look at the river of life metaphor, though, God is inviting us into the divine flow, into seeing that there is a better way of living, a bigger, better story out there, and he's inviting us into it. And there is always that choice of just getting out of it, saying, you know, I'm not interested. I'm going to get out. I'm going to get up on the riverbank. I'm going to go search for a different river, or you know what? I don't need the river thing. I don't need the river of life. I can do this on my own. So the truth this morning is that God has a bigger, better story. He is writing a bigger, better story. We are invited to participate. We are invited to be actors who actually help write the script. It's more like a choose-your-own-adventure type story than it is like an Ikea manual, where it's here's how you do it, this is what you do, and hopefully you have all the right pieces, good luck to you. We actually get to help write the story. It's a really cool thing. 
author of the best-selling book, Blue Like Jazz. I don't know if you remember this book. Uh, Donald Miller, he wrote this book, Blue Like Jazz. It was kind of a biography about his growing up years, his wrestling with faith, and uh, it was just wildly popular for a while. Well, it became so popular, New York Times best-selling list, I think it even says somewhere on there, like over a million copies sold, and uh, and he, he got approached by people from the film industry who said, let's make your story into a movie. He so said, that sounds really fun. Let's do that. That's really cool. It was so popular. Everybody thought it was going to be an instant hit. And as they started writing the script, somebody approached him and they said, you know, Donald, we're going to have to change a lot of stuff because it's just not that interesting. <laughs> it's just not that exciting of a story that we're starting to put this script together and we can't imagine who's going to want to come see this movie. Can you imagine being told that when the story is about your life? <laughs> Somebody coming to you and saying like, hey, we've looked at your life, everything you've done, and it's really not that interesting. So we're going to have to make some stuff up so that you are now more in, a more interesting person. Doesn't that hurt a little bit or maybe a lot? That would hurt a lot if somebody looked at your life, had the chance to examine your life and said, yeah, it's just not that interesting. You're not that interesting of a person. So in this moment, he had this kind of crisis, really, and he started thinking about, oh my gosh, I need to figure out how to write a better story with my life. How can, from this point forward, I write a better story? And Donald Miller, being a Christian, also realized that he needed to see how can he be a part of God's bigger story. God's better story that God is writing for each and every one of us. And so this crisis, like any good author, led him to a book. And the book is called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. It's about the power of story, all that he learned through this grueling process of self-discovery, self-evaluation. In that book, he writes these lines. He says, I believe, if I can get it, I believe there is a writer outside ourselves plotting a better story for us, interacting with us even, and whispering a better story into our consciousness. I remember reading this line and wondering, like, do we believe that? As people of faith, do we believe that there is an author outside of us writing a better story for us, inviting us into that divine flow to participate in the river of life and he's interacting with us even. I love that line, that he's interacting with us, whispering into our ear even. It reminds me in Isaiah, there's this line, I think it's in Isaiah 39, the people are in exile, and they're feeling, uh, they, they can't help but feel pretty depressed at this point. They, they've been carted off to Babylon. And, and Isaiah has this prophecy, and he's telling them of a future time, telling them of a time when they're going to hear the voice of the Lord. And whether they turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I love that. I, I thought of that instantly when I read this quote, that, that we have a biblical example that we can hear the voice of the Lord, that God is with us, interacting with us, whispering a better story into our consciousness, saying, this is the way. This is the way that the river of life leads. Would you walk in it? Would you go this way? Would you follow me? I, and I love this. I, I long to know. I, I love this image that God is interacting with us, that God isn't the guide who kicks you into the water and says, good luck. Hope it works out for you. That I love to, to, to picture that God is the guide in the boat with us. And we have a chance to listen to the guide. And every time I've been rafting, it goes so much better when you listen to the expert 
than when the kids are like, we're going to do whatever we want. It doesn't go so well. We've had some dangerous moments. I've seen rafts wrapped around rocks. It's not a pretty thing. And so this image, this metaphor continues that the author is like the river guide who's with us. God is with us, interacting with us, whispering, this is the way, this is the way, do it like this, if we would tune our ears and be able to hear him. There's two stories from the Bible I want to highlight this morning. One is listed in your bulletin as Judges 2. We're going to be looking at that. One of these is a negative example of people who chose to leave the flow. They were in the divine flow. God was present. They were listening. And at one point they said, yeah, we got this now. We don't need you anymore. We're going to get out of the river. And there's another story of an individual in the Bible who, who in spite of the chaos of his life, in spite of the craziness of his life, chose to stay in the flow and listen and obey and trust that even though circumstances were really messed up, really messed up, God had it all under control. So let's pick up in Judges 2, 6 through 10. Judges 2, 6 through 10, and this is our negative example. It says this, Judges 2, 6 through 10. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried in the land, him in the land of his inheritance at Timnaharas in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So the context. The people of Israel, if you remember, they were journeying through the desert. At times they were telling Moses, can we just eddy out, Moses? Can we just get in this eddy and stay here? Can we actually maybe, Moses, go back upstream to Egypt? At least we know what it was like up there. Can we just get out of this river altogether? But they stayed in. Moses kept them in. Moses kept listening to the guide. They were good to go. They made it through the desert wanderings. They made it to the promised land. Joshua then took on the mantle of listening to the Lord for the people. And Joshua kept them in the flow. And they were good to go. They were listening to God. They were working with God. They defeated the people who were living in the land. And now, now there's security. There's peace. The people have been sent off. The tribes have, have, they've divided up the land. They've sent each tribe to their own inherited area. And there's relative peace. There's relative prosperity. There's safety. And the people become complacent. And so we have this verse, verse 10. After that whole generation was gone, that whole generation who had seen God lead them through the promised land, who had seen God uh, defeat their foes, who, they, they had seen and experienced the closeness, the nearness of God. They'd heard the whisper, this is the way, walk in it. That whole generation is gone. And now we have this sad, sad line in the text. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord and did not know what he had done. They did not know the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. This generation existed that, that just didn't know about God's presence in their lives. They didn't know. They didn't know, and they were, so they were in danger of getting swept off course, getting stuck in a strainer, their boats wrapped around a rock. And eventually this process began here in Judges 
where if, if you know the biblical history, you know that this began right here, setting the Israelites down a course where many just started saying, like, you know what, let's get out of the river altogether. This whole thing isn't really working for us. Is God really around anymore? And so they started to get out of the river. And so you have to ask yourself, like, how did this happen? This could never happen to us, right? We know the stories. We know that Jesus lives. We would never let this happen where a phrase like this could be said about us, right? The people are finally settled. There's relative peace in the region. They have enough. They're content. They're experiencing some peace, some safety, prosperity. They don't have to fight anymore. They don't have to hit their knees and say, God, you are the only one that can save us relying on God for everything. No, they were safe. They were settled. They quit telling the stories. They quit reminding each other of all the things God had done. Christian author and activist Shane Claiborne writes, perhaps the most dangerous place for a Christian to be is in safety and comfort. Because when we're in safety and comfort, what happens? We start to rely more on us, what I can do. I, I can get myself out of this situation. I have resources. I, and, I, and I am guilty of this. I think about this, that, that, that it, it pains me to say that oftentimes my first response is, I know how to navigate systems to get the help I need. And then what do we do when all hope is lost? Then we go, oh God, save us! When we've tried everything on our own. And so Claiborne says, perhaps the most dangerous place for a Christian to be is in safety and comfort. God save us. This is the story of the judges, by the way, the book of the judges. The people, after they just settle into this thing, they start following other gods. Now some of the people that they didn't totally get rid of come back and enslave them. And then they're like, oh man, we don't like this. God save us. So God raises up a judge. The judge saves them. They think this is great. Now we've got some peace and prosperity again. We're good to go. Ah, we don't really need God that much again. Oh God save us. It's the story of the judges, and we can see it in our own lives as well. We can see it in our own lives as well. See, the fact is it's too easy when things get too easy to write off our need for God. When things are just too easy, it's like, I don't know, do we really need God anymore? I've got this iPhone that's pretty cool. I've got Google that can answer a lot of questions for me. Modern medicine is pretty cool. I don't know. Do I really need God and so the question we have to ask ourselves that I would leave you with is, are we in danger of having a whole generation who neither knows the Lord or what he has done for his people? Uh, the studies and statistics are showing that that is happening. There's been this kind of sense of like, oh, people will trickle back. People will come back to church. You know, the classic thing is once they have kids, yeah, maybe they left, but they'll come back once they have kids and once... But if we're having a generation that never, ever, ever heard the story or ever grew up in church, what they're not coming back to anything because they never left anything. They just have never been here. So we have to start thinking, how do we communicate differently for that generation? How do we communicate differently if we want to see people come and join the flow, the divine flow, the bigger, better story? How do we stay in tune with God so we don't get complacent, so we don't get hit by a sweeper, stuck in a strainer, or just eddy out in life and say, eh, it's good enough for me. I'm saved. I don't really want to jump in the river. How do we do this? The last thing I want you to consider, I said I had two stories, is Joseph. 
Joseph, his story is incredible. It blows my mind every time. It's at the end of Genesis. Uh, if you've not read it before, you need to grab it this week. I was just reading through it a couple weeks ago and thought, this is an incredible story. If you remember Joseph, Joseph is, uh, is at this point in his life the youngest of all of his brothers, and he gets that technicolor dream coat, right? Remember this, the coat of many colors? I like this, uh, this image here. He's, you know, he looks really, he's like a bad man right there. Um, in his Technicolor dream coat. I don't know that he was probably that cool because his brothers really couldn't stand him. Remember, he's a dreamer and he has these dreams of saying, you know, one day my brothers are all going to bow down to me. And his brothers are like, uh-uh. And then he says, uh, he comes again, he says, I had another dream and, he, and my brothers weren't just bowing down to me, but my mom and dad were too. And they're like, really, dreamer, crazy pants. You think that's going to happen? And so his brothers are really sick of this and cook up a plan one day. If you remember the story, they cook up a plan where he comes out to get, deliver a message and they say, let's kill him. We'll just tell dad that a wild animal did it. And then I love in the story that they're like, no, 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 let's be reasonable. Let's just sell him into slavery. Like that's a better option. Let's not kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery. Oh, good, good choice, guys. Way to go. So they sell him into slavery. He goes off to Egypt. He's sold into Egypt, so now his life is just terrible. But then God is present with him in some weird way because I love this in the story that Potiphar, this Egyptian guy that I don't know if Potiphar knows God. I don't, we don't know what it says there. But somehow Potiphar sees something in Joseph that Joseph still loves God, and God is letting Joseph prosper as a slave in Potiphar's house puts him in charge of the house. And then if you know the story, Potiphar's wife decides she really likes Joseph. And Joseph says like, uh-uh, I'm not that kind of guy. And so it, now what happens is uh, right when he says, uh-uh, I'm not interested, she accuses him of rape, attempting to rape her. And now he gets thrown in prison. So sold into slavery, thrown in prison. Now he's in prison and the same thing happens. The jailer looks at this guy and says, gosh, even though this guy's in jail, there's something about this guy. There's something about him. He's connected to something bigger. I don't know what it is. And the jailer starts to put him in charge of things. Well, now he interprets some dreams. Joseph interprets dreams for the cupbearer. And I think it's like the chef of some sort uh, for Pharaoh. They're in jail. And uh, he interprets dreams. And they say, that's pretty cool. They get out. Well, the one guy gets impaled. Whoops, that's a bad part of the story. But the other guy goes back to Sir Pharaoh and he says, oh, I will remember you, Joseph. I will tell Pharaoh about how wonderful you are interpreting these dreams. You're such a great guy. And then he doesn't do that until a few years later when Pharaoh has some dreams. And the guy's like, hey, I remember a guy who could interpret dreams. So Joseph comes before Pharaoh and he, and he tells Pharaoh his dreams and what they mean and there's going to be a famine. And Pharaoh says, wow, you, God is obviously present with you. Again, wild statements. What does Joseph's life look like that people keep going, I see something different in you. Through all these terrible things that have happened in your life, I see something different in this man. He is living some, in some other stream of life, in some other stream of life that the rest of us don't seem to have access to. There's something different in this man. God is obviously with you. He becomes second highest in command in the land. The famine comes, and what happens? His brothers Come begging for food. The brothers, oh, this is just like the dramatic twist in the Bible. The brothers now who sold him into slavery are back like, hey, uh, we need some food. They don't recognize Joseph after, I think it's been like 20 years or something has gone by. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them instantly. And in the end, 
this is the part that's amazing, the end. What I want to leave you with this morning of how can we tell a bigger, better story. In the end, brothers now know who Joseph is. Now they're freaked out because how do most stories go? If you're not in the divine flow, what's the, what's the story really go like here? Now it's time for revenge, right? Oh, you sold me into slavery. Now I'm powerful. You're done. You're done, brothers. And instead, he offers forgiveness. He invites them into the flow and says, hey, I recognize that God was up to something bigger this whole time. It's a dramatic turn in the story. And he has to reiterate it at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50. Now, now his dad, his dad has died, and the brothers think that was the only reason Joseph hasn't enacted his revenge on us is because he didn't want to do it until dad was gone. Now, dad is gone, and they're like, they come before him, and they're like, we'll do anything. We'll be your slaves. We will do anything you need. Please just don't kill us. And Joseph says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The saving of many lives. In essence, I, I would like to interpret this as Joseph saying, God is writing a bigger story. God is writing a better story. And Joseph says, I know I'm a part of it. I am embracing the fact that I am in this divine flow and I've ridden some bumpy waters but I've seen God in the process. He's been present with me. He's been whispering in, me, in my ear. He's been reminding me that he's got me through all of these bumpy waters, over the strainers, under the sweepers. He's got me. And he used all of this awfulness in my life to save many lives. I wonder what I want to leave you with this morning. I wonder if all of us don't have a chance to be in that same ride. To look back or, or to look in our present moment and say, God is doing something and if I can tune my ear to him, he's doing something in my life, he's doing something in our lives where he's writing a bigger, better story and, and through me, through us, he's gonna do all this so that he can save many lives. We get to partner with God. We get to partner with God in writing God's bigger, better story. And in that, we get to invite others, kind of like I imagine Joseph doing here, inviting his brothers now to realize, guys, God is up to something bigger than what you thought you were doing, what you planned on doing. God is something bigger. Come be a part of the story. And then we have this opportunity to invite others into the divine flow, to enjoy the ride, to avoid the sweepers, avoid the strainers, stay away from those boring eddies, to invite people, get off of the side and get into the boat. It's so much more fun. There's a better story, the best story ever that exists, and you and I get to participate in writing it. And so the good news that of Jesus Christ is that God, the one who created humankind in his image, breathed life into humanity, is inviting us to participate in the story. And this morning we come to the table to remember our place in the story, that we get to sit at the table with our Lord, our Savior. We get to participate in writing the story every time we come to the table so there's a bigger, better story of a God who comes down, empties himself as in an act of self-giving love, dying for you and for me. 
And we are invited into that story to be the ones now who empty ourselves in self-giving love, bringing others along on the journey. Would you pray with me? God, it is an incredible thing that you, you, you created us, you are writing the story, and yet you allow us to participate in that. You allow us to participate in the writing of the story, God, and that's no small thing. You've given us a big task, a big responsibility. Lord, we confess there's times where we aren't listening, where we're pretty complacent about what you're up to, what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives or in the lives of those around us. Lord, wake us up to your presence. Wake us up that we might hear your voice whispering, this is the way, walk in it. God, that we might have eyes to see as you see, ears to hear as you hear. That we would look around and we would see what breaks your heart, God, and we would go to those places and bring healing and hope and restoration, all the things that you brought into our lives. God, we pray that all these things, you would give us your Spirit's power, that we wouldn't go alone, that we wouldn't go on our own power, our own energies, our own strength, but that your Spirit would empower us, would give us the words when necessary. God, thank you again for sending your Son. We come to this table to celebrate, God, all that you have done. And we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. It's now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life. All who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them. All who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from now on in his holy ways, are invited to draw near with faith and receive this holy sacrament. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. We are celebrating at this table. Many will come from east and west, from north and south, and sit at table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table. Our Savior invites those who trust him to share the feast he has prepared. According to Luke, when our risen Lord was at table with his disciples, he took the bread, he blessed, and he broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I want to invite the servers to come forward at this time. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, our Savior, blessed forever, to you be praise and honor for giving yourself, shedding your blood, letting your body be broken in death for our sake so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So bless, God, this bread which we together eat, this cup which we together drink, 
Let us through this bread and through this cup become partakers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning you will be receiving communion in the pews. Uh, you'll get the bread first. We will then take the bread and uh, eat together once everybody has, has received the bread. And then you will get the cup after. And again, once everyone in the, in the church has the cup, we will take the cup together.